You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. cents. That's how much interest my bank paid me in 2022. I'm not sure if that makes me want to cry, laugh, or yell, but I know none of those feelings are what I want to have when it comes to calculating my annual bank interest. Good news is, I don't have a ton of money in savings. I have a couple thousand dollars that acts as my emergency fund, but that comical calculation would make me furious if I had tens of thousands of dollars in my savings account. The last few years have shown us the real impact of inflation. An item that cost $100 in 2022 cost roughly $115 today using the average cumulative rate of inflation. What that means? To break even, you want your money keeping up with the same rate. 19 cents isn't gonna do it for me. Luckily, Jeremy Kyle is here to share some strategies on how we can make more interest from our savings. This conversation is packed with a lot of takeaways, so get ready to take some notes. We are also going to talk about how much money you should have in your bank account, what are I-bonds and how you can use them for short-term savings, and why, even as a young adult, you shouldn't discount Social Security and your retirement plan. If you're a listener of the show and haven't left us a rating review, we'd really appreciate it if you did. And if you're new, welcome. Sit back, relax, and let's learn something new. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the physics major, Army Brat, and host of the Retirement Revealed podcast, Jeremy Kyle. So Jeremy, I'm excited. We're exploring a topic that is actually somewhat near and dear to my heart, which is getting more interest out of your bank. Honestly, this has got to motivate me to make some changes in my own life. I am with a big national bank and they probably pay me 0.01%. And I haven't been that worked up on it until recently when I just see interest rates continue to climb. You know, it was one thing when Ally was paying 0.3 and my bank was paying 0.01 not a big deal, but I have a friend that I see post every time that Ally increases her savings interest rates, she'll post on it. And she's at like two and a quarter or 2.5 right now or something ridiculous like that. And I'm like, holy cow, I got to look into it. And then you popped up into my life. And I was like, yes, let's explore this topic because I want to make some changes selfishly on my own. But why don't we just start with what the heck is happening with interest rates right now? Why are they continuing to climb? I think People probably naturally understand it has to do something with inflation, but can you help paint the picture for us more broadly and and why things are happening the way they are? You got it. Well, you asked me to talk a little bit about macroeconomics, which is just how does money work over the entire world. So we'll try to keep this very short and also talk about everything in the entire world (laughs) at the same time. But think of interest rates kind of in two segments. There's short-term interest rates and there's long-term interest rates. Short-term interest rates are virtually 100% controlled by these things called central banks, which in the U.S. is the Federal Reserve. So if you ever hear the Fed is raising rates, specifically the Fed is raising rates on what they charge and give to big banks. And because the Fed, the central bank, is changing the short-term rates with big banks, it just kind of trickles throughout the entire banking system. Meanwhile, there's long-term interest rates, which is a lot of times like a mortgage or a company goes out 
and borrows money for 10 years or 30 years. And that's really more the market, the economy, everybody. So it's kind of like this market force up and down. So if you see those rates going up and down, it's just because of everybody that participates in the economy having some sort of feeling on, is the economy going to do well in the future or not necessarily do well in the future? What's their demands for the level of money and interest that they want to have for that? But short-term interest rates are probably what you're thinking of with banks. And that's what gets all the headlines. And it's the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Because inflation has been happening in the past, the Federal Reserve is catching up and trying to combat this problem that's already been happening. And it seems like the number one way of all the studies out there to combat inflation is to raise short-term interest rates. And to give you the reason why, if short-term interest rates are really good, you leave your money in the bank and you get good interest out of it. You don't go and spend a whole bunch of money. And spending a whole bunch of money is the way that inflation grows because there's just so much money moving around and there's usually kind of the same amount of things out there. Well, more money, same amount of things means those things cost more. That's inflation. And because of that, the Federal Reserve is increasing short-term interest rates. That's it. That makes sense. Are they doing a good job? I know you keep a pretty keen eye on inflation rates for something else too, because you've become quite the expert in the I-bond space, which I think we'll get to later in this. But is this increase in rates helping out with the inflation right now? Well, that's what's uh, so interesting. When you see inflation, normally what you're reading in the newspaper or online or seeing the news, whatever, inflation is reporting a 12-month number that's already happened. So if you're listening to this and it's December, they're reporting the inflation from last November until this November. So inflation doesn't have an is, really. Inflation was. And so if you hear the 12-month inflation is this, well, that's what happened one month to 13 months ago. And it's kind of the average in the total of all that. So at the beginning of inflation growing, you were seeing numbers like four, five, six, seven percent and the Federal Reserve and a bunch of economists were saying, oh, that's not a big deal. It's going to go away. Well, these are 12-month numbers. If you looked into the one-month numbers, what happened the most recent month, those numbers were 8, 9, 10, 12% very quickly. So it's like the current inflation was much, much higher than a reported inflation. And so now you're still seeing numbers. We're, we're talking here in the fall of 2022. And you're seeing numbers around like 8% and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this inflation is really high right now. Well, that's what happened in the last one to 13 months. Actually, the prior three months, like the last three months here from uh, that'd be July, August, September. Now uh, that's the last three months of data I have in my mind right now. Inflation's actually zero. And really? so, yeah, it's absolutely zero. You won't, I don't know why you don't see that anywhere. But if you look at the last three months of inflation, it's zero. And that's because inflation was crazy high like four to 13 months ago. And that just kind of gets baked into this number. That's a one-year number that's already happened. It's already in the past. It's just kind of a good reminder. I'm a financial advisor. And a lot of people ask me, hey, how is the market doing? Or let's invest based on what's going to happen. There's not too much present tense. There's not too much future ability to project when you're looking at the market and things like that. Almost everything you're reacting to has already happened. And it seems like the Federal Reserve a year and a half ago was reacting to numbers that were old that suggested inflation was not as good or, you know, it was kind of lower than it really was. And now they still seem to be reacting to numbers that suggest that inflation is actually higher than it is. 
So I'll say, yes, they're doing a good job in that uh, inflation in my mind is going down because I'm looking at the month to the month numbers, but they kind of waited too long. And like any problem, if you wait too long to focus on it, you have to do a bigger than needed correction. And that seems to be what's going on right now. Yeah, I find it interesting as this being one of their primary levers to help with inflation. And then they also have these counter arguments coming from the political side as well to like make sure like we today is actually voting day right now. And there are so many things leading up to voting day that both sides are trying to be attuned to and aware of and somewhat manipulate. Like I was just reading yesterday actually about gas prices. And it's like one of the best correlations between presidents' favorability rates, where the gas price is at right now. So clearly Biden over the last three, four months was trying to bring down gas prices across the United States just to help knowing that midterms were coming up in the horizon. I find it really fascinating that the Fed also has to fight against sometimes politicians saying you need to stop increasing rates, even though they believe it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's just so interesting that, well, basically both sides of the political spectrum likes to give you free things and pretend it's actually free. And uh, (laughs) interesting enough, money was free. They just created a whole bunch of money by clicking a few buttons. They sent it out to a bunch of people. Interest rates are crazy low. And so literally money was free. And I think we all know something that's free, you don't put as much value on it than something you worked for and paid for. And just because of that, people were making poor decisions with money, poor decisions on do they invest here? Do they buy a business? Do they do different things? Do I spend and buy this TV? Well, of course, it's free money. Why not? So you're talking like checks from COVID essentially over the last like, you know, two years, that $1,200 check, I think we initially got and like another $600 check. I just like it had money coming in. And you're right. I was like, okay, should I spend this money on something? And then of course, yeah, that's, I guess, when we saw inflation and then that compounded with supply chain issues and probably a whole lot of other factors that is just hard to really identify one certain subset of what is influencing all of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's nonstop. But 20 years ago, George Bush was sending out $300 checks and everyone thought that was, that was crazy and politically manipulative. Well, now there's thousands of dollars of checks that are being sent out 20 years later. So it's just, it's just going on. It's been unending, I suppose, with the pretending that money is free from politicians. <laughs> Let's not get sidetracked. I think that's a whole other conversation in itself. And I'm sure we both have opinions on it, but there's not a whole lot I feel like we can do there. But there is a whole lot we can do about the interest rate that we're getting from the bank. First and foremost, being a financial advisor, you're probably speaking to a much different audience that might have a much larger amount in their quote, quote, bank money. But for the 20 and 30 somethings out there, do you have a good rule of thumb for how much they should be having in their bank account versus maybe how much they might be having in some of their investment accounts? Yeah, well, any level of money that you have is important to you. And any level of money that you have, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars or more, you want to get the most out of it. And everyone should have short-term money and long-term money. And when you're starting out, your long-term money oftentimes is going to be like a Roth IRA, where you're just putting money in every single month. A little bit of that is just to get ahead and, and let compound interest grow for 30 or 40 years. Another part of it that I think is almost more important when you're just starting out, when you're in your 20s, is just the habit. The $50 a month that I started out with as a 19-year-old put into the uh, Roth IRA, I don't know, that probably has turned into like a thousand bucks. Like it's not, it's not going to change my life. But what has changed my life is I put in $50 a month as a 19-year-old in college with that habit that I'm putting money into my Roth IRA. And I've kept that going for over 20 years. That's a great habit. That's what changed my life. So get in the habit of saving for the long term, get in the habit of saving for the short term. 
think of your money for the short term, like I need this money next month or next year or just in case. And think of your money for the long term. I'm not touching this for 20 years plus. And when you've got that mindset and you've got your investments in the right spot, like your long-term money should not be in the bank. It's just probably not going to work out well for you for 20 years to keep your money in the bank. And your short-term money should not be in Apple stock or crypto or real estate. Like it's your short-term money. Like I need this money tomorrow just in case. And so the tomorrow just in case type of money is basically bank money and bank type of things. And thankfully, interest rates are actually going up, which means you've got a higher opportunity. You've got a better ability to go earn and, and make some money on that. It kind of gives you a good feeling. Like, I don't mind putting that $100 a month away. I don't mind putting that $1,000 towards the savings account, knowing that I'm actually going to get something out of it. And if you look online, you're going to see all kinds of great advice. I'm thinking of Dave Ramsey specifically right now, where just get to $1,000. That's step one. Just about anyone can get to $1,000 in a savings account. And you've got to have that $1,000 in the savings account so you feel comfortable investing for the long run and you feel comfortable paying down your debt, knowing that just in case something happens, I've got a thousand bucks I can turn to. So we'll give that step one, get a thousand bucks in the bank account. I think that's a great step one. And most of the longtime listeners are comfortable with emergency funds and also realizing that if they're saving for a short-term savings goals, like a down payment or a house or something like that, that that money probably shouldn't be in Apple stock or and or crypto or things like that as well. So that's the money that we're going to be talking about today, some of the options that we have and, and how we can make a little bit of it or at least keep up with inflation because we saw over the last year and a half, two years that if it wasn't making any money for you, it was actually losing value. Right. That money was actually losing value. So that $1,000 might be $1,000.10, but honestly on, on paper and what the spending power was, it's much less significant than 18 months ago when inflation's been nine plus percent over the last 18 months. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting now, like you said, it, it wasn't, too interesting, even up until the spring of 2022, where who cares if you got 0.1 or 0.3? Now it's interesting. And now there's different areas you can go. You mentioned I-bonds. And I think the fact that I-bond interest rates just skyrocketed in the middle of 21 and are still high towards the end of 2022, is just got people thinking and got people interested of, wait a second, I can control a little bit of this. I can make some decisions to go get some good interest. And it's just thinking through how much money do I want in my local bank that I can access right away and I've got all my credits and debits all set up too. And how much do I set aside towards an online savings account or maybe set aside that I'm not going to touch it for a year or two years and hopefully get a higher interest rate. There's just a whole bigger world now. It was always there. It's just now you're getting paid to go explore and learn about the different world of, of short-term interest rates. Yeah, so let's flesh it out. You mentioned a couple of options there, I-bonds, high-yield savings accounts, et cetera. So let's talk money that I need to access here in the next six months. So that rules out a few things like I-bonds and maybe a few other options like CDs that we'll get into subsequent in this conversation. What options do I have right now? Say I'm with a national bank, I looked it up and I'm making 0.01%. What might be some other areas that I should consider moving my money to, my short-term money, six months or less, so I can get some more interest out of this? Yeah, when you say six months or less too, because you can go out and get like a six-month CD and mm -hmm. things like that. So I'm going to call this like today money. Like okay. You probably won't need it today, but what if you did? You can go get it today or maybe tomorrow. And typically what you're going to want to go to is a place called bankrate.com. I'm sure there's lots of other places that track savings rates and things like that, but that seems to be the easiest one that I'm always going to is bankrate.com. 
And that's a bit of a way to be a do-it-yourselfer and go look on your own to say, whether I'm looking for a savings account, a money market, different CDs, what are the best rates that are out there? And how do I go sign up and actually get those rates? So I like bankrate.com. Another place, which is kind of almost hands-off-ish, is a place called maxmyinterest.com. So maxmyinterest kind of does it for you. With bankrate.com, you might say this bank has a really good interest rate. And then two months later, there might've been another bank that actually was a better interest rate than the one you signed up for. That's a lot of work to research it, study it, move your money from one bank to the next. But Max My Interest, they do that on your behalf. So they are checking out which banks have the best interest and they're actually moving your money from one savings account. Like if you've got one account at 2% and then all of a sudden another account opens up is available at 2.5, they'll transfer it on over so that you get the higher interest rate right away. So that's, you might be someone that's more of a do-it-yourself or I want to really learn about this and I like kind of moving around and getting offers. Sometimes there's offers like get a hundred bucks to sign up here, that kind of stuff. Bankrate.com is probably the best for you. And if you're more hands-off, like I just want to put my money towards a place and know that it's going to get close to the best interest rate around, maxmyinterest.com is a good way to go. Yeah, I like Bankrate. They post monthly top savings accounts yes, out yep. there and I just did it. a quick Google on it as well. And I'm seeing 3%, 3.25, 3.16. Some of these banks I know, some of these banks, I have no idea who they are, which is what you're mentioning here. Some of these banks will have just a scorching deal for a month. They'll hit some of these top charts and then they might reduce the interest that they're providing, knowing that this new flood of customers that came to them because of their scorching hot deal in November are going to stick because there's some pain points with having to move to the next bank to go grab another quarter percent. Yep, that's exactly it. And then you did turn me on to Max My Interest. That was, a, Excellent. I never, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that as a easy, simple things. And I think that's a really easy, simple thing to do. And I think they only take 0.08% or something, right? Yeah, they'll take 0.08%. There's a minimum. I forget exactly what it is. I think I did the math and you've got to have more than 60 grand. So whatever their minimum is, maybe it's 12 bucks a quarter. You can find out. They got all kinds of disclosures, I'm sure, that tell you <laughs> what it is. <laughs> but basically, they're, you're going to pay a fee to them because they're doing a service for ah. you. And if it's only 0.08% and you know, you're getting 3.58 from the bank they found, well, you're getting 3.5. So that's pretty good. It's probably better than the, the local bank that you're, you're working with. Have you tried it out, experimented with it and using it? Yeah, it's been interesting because uh, what really turned me on to all these interest rates topics is about two years ago, a lot of our clients were calling me saying, I had this money in the CD. It was at 2%. Now it's renewing at 0.5. What do I do? It's not as if I make any money off of bank advice. It's not as if that's kind of my normal financial advisor world. But these are my clients and they're asking me these questions. I want to figure it out. So I just started delving in deeper to all the different topics and the different kind of short-term interest rate areas. Generally speaking, I thought I'm going to try it out first. And so, yes, I went and did some I-bonds. I did some max my interest. I looked at bankrate.com. I opened all these different accounts that really you as a consumer probably shouldn't do. Like just find a couple of things that work for you and, and run with it. But I, I've got all, all kinds of logins all over the place because I'm just trying to learn about these different areas before I recommend it to clients. So yeah, max my interest has been good. It's just interesting learning how it all works out. One kind of a unique feature that they'll point out is theoretically you have too much money in your checking account. If you're someone that always has $5,000 in your checking account and you never spend more than $2,000 a month, theoretically you have $3,000 too much in your checking. So Max My Interest will do something called a sweep where they'll figure out, they'll kind of look at your behavior and realize you have two or 3000 too much in your checking account. 
and they'll be able to pull it through to the savings account so that you have a higher interest. And then of course, they're also monitoring to say, wait a second, you don't have enough in your checking and they'll send money back over mm. to your checking. So that's kind of one of their unique features is they keep an eye idea through all kinds of computer math. And that means that you have more money in your savings over the long run and getting more interest out of it. That's a cool feature. I didn't know anything about that. That's, I could see myself utilizing that. And that seems like fairly automated for the most part, right? Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah you got it. You just kind of set some guidelines and they also make some suggestions too because they're, they're keeping an eye on that. And I love that you just go out and experiment with a bunch of things. I know you rephrased yourself from Mr. Know-it-all to Mr. Share-it-all. And truly, that truly is you. You're just out there experimenting, trying different things. And if you find something cool, then you'll share it with the world. Yeah, that's, why not? Why keep it to yourself? I run into so many people that have low interest rates or they, they don't have the right investments and, and they could easily make a change. They just haven't been given the opportunity to make that change or the education to make that change. And that's what we want to do. That's why we have a podcast. That's why we blog about the different interest rate things like that. And one more thing to close the loop on Max My Interest as well. You mentioned that minimum threshold and you got to pay $12 if you don't have 60 grand. And I'm sure there are not a lot of people that are keeping 60 grand in their, their savings accounts right now. But if you're working with a financial advisor, it might be worth asking them if they have some kind of relationship with Max My Interest. And I believe if they do, they can get that fee waived for you. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not that the fee is waived, the 0.08, it's the minimum is waived. Yep. So that if you have less than 60 grand, then you are paying truly the 0.08. $12 a quarter on a thousand bucks is, is going to add up. It's probably not worth it, you know, but 0.08 seems very much worth it. Totally. I think that does. So let's move into some of the more intermediate bank money options that are out there. And you've mentioned Ibon so many times, and this has gotten hot in our space here over the last six months or so. Let's just start with a breakdown of what I-bonds are and why they became so relevant over the last year. Yeah, I just think in, in general, when you are setting money aside for some reason, you should try to get the best deal that you can. And there's more than one way to get an interest rate. I'm thinking here of I-bonds are basically, you can look at it a couple of different ways, but let's just think of it like 12 month kind of money. I need money a year from now. And that's because one of the features is you cannot absolutely in any way get the money out in the first 12 months of owning it. So if you're somebody that needs money a year from now, your bank account's probably not going to pay that good of an interest. So why not give up access to that money to get a higher interest rate? Like you're giving something and you're getting something in return. And if you're thinking of what can I do for 12 months? Like 12 months, typically kind of old school was a CD, certificate of the deposit. Yep. You go to your bank and they'd say, we'll lock it up for 12 months. We'll give you a higher interest rate. Well, another option is the 12-month I-bond. And it's not as if you signed up for it for 12 months and it's going to automatically cash out. It's just that's the rules. You got to hold it for at least 12 months minimum. You can hold it for 30 years total if you wanted to. The first five years, they'll take away the most recent three months of interest when you cash it out. And, and some people are scared of that, but a lot of times you still come out way ahead. Wait, wait, so back that up. If I cash out my I-bonds, mm -hmm between years one and years five, the only real penalty then is losing the last three months of interest. That's exactly it. You lose okay. the last three months of interest. And what was so great about I-bonds from middle of 2021 until October-ish of 2022 is that even after losing that three-month penalty, it was still light years ahead of every other 12-month option. Now we're talking, like I said, it's election day today. It's November 2022 when we're, we're talking here. 
there's a lot more different options than just I-bonds that are actually paying good interest rates. A year ago, that was the only game in town. Now you've got to really compare it to, should I do a CD? Should I do an I-bond? What's interesting enough is that you can go out and get treasury bills. That's the government basically giving it a CD. There's more nuances, but just basically think of it like a, like a CD. And anytime you're investing for 12 months or whatever length of time, like go try to find what the best rates are. I'll say of those three, at this point now, we're talking November, 2022, they're kind of all about equal for their interests as long as you go and learn about it and know exactly what you want. And so learn a bit about CDs, about I-bonds, about treasury bills. You asked me about I-bonds, so we'll talk about that. I imagine we'll want to talk about treasury bills because those are probably new to most people. Yeah, I have no idea what treasury bills are. There so you go, we'll talk about it. Let's, let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, so, so an I-bond is a U.S. government savings bond. I don't know about you, but my grandparents would give me these paper savings bonds like 40 years ago. My grandma did too, and it was awesome. I didn't touch it until I actually graduate, or it yeah. was like right around college yep. time. And my dad was like, hey, grandma gave these to you. I know you're going to be starting work full-time next year. Yep. This might be a really good time to cash these out because you're going to have to pay taxes on them. And you probably want to pay tax on them now when you're making like $12,000 or whatever I was making between all my different side jobs that I had at the time versus next year when you've got full-time W-2 employment money. You got it. And so these I-bonds, are, they're U.S. government savings bonds. The big difference between what you probably were given back in the day and what I was given back in the day is that these are designed to keep up with inflation. Now, remember, this is inflation that already happened. And so every six months, there's a reporting of here's what inflation already happened. And that's going to be the new inflation rate that's applied to that. You hear this number of whatever the, the rate is right now. Right now, it's 6.5%. We'll just call it that. With that number, you only get that for six months. When you buy a new I-bond, you have no idea what's going to happen the second six months or a year from now, or on down the road. And so when you're buying an I-bond, just realize and know you have an interest rate and you don't know what's going to happen six months from now. And so you've got to think of it more of a longer term, kind of be aware of and, and just get that flexibility piece of it that it might work out to your benefit. It might turn out that a CD or these treasury bills might turn out better. But one plus side of an I-bond is, is you kind of know the minimum and what's going to happen after that. You sign up for a CD and all of a sudden interest rates jump, you are locked into that CD. You sign up for a treasury bill and interest rates jump, you're locked into that, that treasury bill. And so it's kind of a nice little kicker that helps with these I-bonds is you know what you're going to get for six months. And if you're thinking, hey, things might go up, like inflation might go up, interest rates might go up six months from now, you'll probably feel that effect in a good way when you get that I-bond. Yeah, I think it's a really great option for maybe people that know student loans are coming on the horizon and they want to set some money aside for that, or they know they're going to start looking for a house next year. Maybe they want to start saving for a down payment. And once again, at this time when inflation was still pretty high, maybe you just want to, at minimum, hedge your bet against inflation and make sure that your money is keeping up with the inflation rate. And that's exactly what I-bonds are, which is actually, I think, pretty cool. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of people have emergency fund money, just-in-case money. And I see a lot of times just in case doesn't necessarily happen, but you might go throughout your life, the next 60 years or 70 years, having this emergency fund and the emergency fund doesn't ever happen or it happens like once. And so if you have five grand or $500 or $50,000, whatever this number is that you have in your emergency fund money, and it's just getting close to zero interest forever, that doesn't help you out as much. 
an iBond might be a great way to look at and say, I'm just going to start saving monies towards the long term. I can't touch it the first 12 months, but 12 months from now, it's completely liquid. And it might be just kind of a good basis of your emergency fund because hopefully a good investor, a good saver is going to have a good amount in their emergency fund for their entire life. And you may as well get it set up to get a good interest rate over your entire life. Will it go negative if it's really deflation, I guess? Zero percent is the lowest it would go. Okay. So we'll floor it at zero. Exactly. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. And where can you buy I-bonds? So that's what's uh, interesting about it. So many people have been reaching out to us saying, hey, I want to buy an I-bond. Well, <laughs> go to treasurydirect.gov. We cannot sell them to you. It used to be your grandma probably went and got her savings bonds at the bank mm-hmm. uh, and then gave them to you. You can't do that anymore. You cannot buy them anywhere else besides online at treasurydirect.gov. And then, of course, you could perhaps get some of them through your tax refund. But most people are going to go directly to treasurydirect.gov and sign up and get their I-bonds that way. Okay. And these aren't things that you can hold in your IRAs or your 401ks? Nope. It's basically like a replacement of your savings account, a replacement of your emergency fund money. It's not your Roth, not your 401k. It's your, your after-tax bank money. And there is a limit on how much you can buy on an annual basis, correct? You got it. So it's $10,000 per person or entity per year. Someone asked me, uh, he was from the Wall Street Journal. He said, what do you think about if they increase the ability to get more than 10000 I said, why would they bother? Because most Americans don't have $10,000. It's only helping the rich folks. It's only helping older retirees. Why bother? But $10,000, you get to $10,000 in I-bonds, I think you're doing all right. You've got a a good amount saved up. You've passed that first level of, let me get a thousand bucks in my savings account. And you're moving on up. I think you're doing all right if you get to that 10,000. But that is the limit. I would agree. (laughs) Yeah. So let's move to treasury bills. This is another thing that you mentioned. I don't really know if I have any good, intelligent questions to ask you about because I don't know a whole lot about it. But this was something you mentioned in our pre-call. What you told me is this is what banks are doing. They're just taking your money and then going out and buying treasury bills. So break the process down for us. Yeah, think of what a bank is doing. A bank is, when you put your money in a savings account, the bank's actually borrowing money from you. And then the bank turns around and they go out and they lend that money and they're hoping to get a higher interest rate. And a lot of times they're lending the money to the U.S. government the government issues bonds. It's kind of like if the bank's buying these bonds from the U.S. government, they're doing other things like investing in real estate and mortgages and things like that. But a large part of what a bank does is go invest in U.S. government bonds. Why not go straight to the the U.S. government yourself and go get those interest rates? And right now, I'll just give you a little bit of a nomenclature. If the government lends the money out for one year or less, they call that a treasury bill. If it's two years or longer, it's called a treasury bond. And so what we're talking about right now is treasury bills where you are lending money to the government for 12 months or less. Just like if you went and got a six-month CD or 12-month CD, you're lending money to your bank for six months or 12 months. And what's so interesting about these treasury bills right now is, again, it's just look around and see what's available. Right now, these treasury bills seem to have the highest interest rate, probably because They're the most directly connected to this Federal Reserve interest rate system where the Fed is raising short-term interest rates. Government treasury bills are probably going up just about in line with that. And these treasury bills are paying good interest that's on there. You might want to look into it and say, I don't need this money for six months. I don't need this money for 12 months. Instead of doing a CD where the bank's going to take your money and probably go buy treasury bills themselves, why don't you go directly to the U.S. government? and get the treasury bills and cut the bank out of it for this type of money. So you are locked in for that level. 
six months, 12 months, four months, three months, whatever it is you want to want to do. What's interesting about the treasury bills is so many people have bought I-bonds through treasurydirect.gov. You can go to the exact same place mm. and buy these treasury bills. So instead of clicking on savings bonds, you click on bills. And there's some ways that you can learn about it. There's some nuances. We've got it on our website. It's retirement-revealed.com. We've got that pinned to the top of our podcast page there of here's how to go about buying treasury bills through treasurydirect.gov. I'm going to say it's probably the most common way that you're going to want to look at buying the treasury bills because you've probably already have a treasury direct website. You've probably learned a bit about it with the I-bonds. Go through, study it and say, hey, why not get a six month treasury bill at four and a half percent right now when the best six month CDs are maybe 3%. Why not go and, and get a higher interest rate on that? You could actually buy treasury bills directly from a broker. You could go directly to your IRA, Roth IRA and buy treasury bills, almost as if you're buying a stock, but you're buying a treasury bill. And so that works a little bit, little bit differently because there's kind of like a market rate for that up and down. The advantage there is if you could go out and buy it, you can turn around and sell it the next day. And so mm. it's not like you're set in stone 100% where you cannot cash out in that six month timeframe if you bought a six month treasury bill, if you did it through your brokerage, your investment account. If you go through treasurydirect.gov, you kind of are set in stone. So it is kind of more like the I-bond-ish. You buy it there, you're locked in, but hey, you didn't pay anyone a commission. You kind of got the best true rate out of it. So there's different ways you can go, but just explore it and figure it out. And if you already have a treasurydirect.gov account, that might be the easiest way to go. If you already have a brokerage account through all kinds of different brokerage places, maybe that's the easiest way to go. And have you found through your experience that treasury bills are usually the better option in terms of rates versus a CD? They're all very similar. And there's kind of different, I said earlier, how long-term rates are kind of set by the market and so many people kind of going back and forth competing on price. I mean, there's literally auctions for treasury bills out there. I mean, this is like a back and forth kind of pricing system. And sometimes CDs are better interest rates. Sometimes treasury bills are better interest rates. There's things that work similarly where all of a sudden one interest rate's better than the other. And right now, fall of 2022, I'd say treasury bills are probably going to be the better bet for interest rates. Who knows what that might be? You know, if all of a sudden you read, hey, uh, the Federal Reserve is dropping interest rates, you might turn around and see, oh my goodness, the CD that I can get online is a better rate than the treasury bill. But for right now, late 2022, treasury bills are by far the better interest compared to the, the alternatives. That makes sense. And then if all of this sounds overwhelming or too much work, or maybe you just love your bank, maybe you have a personal relationship with your banker, or you just love the fact that your bank is one mile away and that you can walk in and get a sucker from the counter and pull out cash from the ATM right there. You can also negotiate with your bank. Is this right? I love that you mentioned that. I've got some thoughts on local banks that I'll share with you, but that's exactly it. It is a lot easier especially if you banked with the same place for however many years and all your debits and credits and, and subscriptions are all, all set up there. It is a lot easier just to work with one place. And absolutely, especially on the, the CD area, sometimes these money markets, like your checking account rates probably not changing, but a lot of times they'll go in and they'll change the rates for you. You just walk in with all your research. Like I could go to bankrate.com, click a few buttons and get 3% on the CD. What are you going to offer me? They might not offer you exactly the top rate that's on there, but if they come pretty close, you did a better job for your money. Your money's going to do a better job for you. And that's a great thing. You can even show them like treasury bills right now for six months are paying four and a half percent. I got a strong feeling they won't come close to that, but they might get close enough that you 
you've got a much better interest rate and it's much worth it. Another thought I have with local banks is so many people tell me, I like seeing where my money is. I don't like to go online because I just don't trust an online bank. And I say, well, tell me a little bit about what you do with your local bank. What do you like about them? And I'm, I'm working with folks that are like 60 plus. So I'm working with like your parents, right? Your parents, your grandparents. Yep. And they'll say, oh, I love my local bank. It's right down the street. And they have this great app. I can deposit checks on my phone. It's so wonderful. It's like, so wait a second. You, you are dealing with your local bank online. Why not deal with an online bank online and get vastly higher interest? The local banks, the national banks that have local branches. Really, when I say local bank, I mean national bank with local bank branches. Yeah. Because those are the ones that historically have very, very low interest rates. Get the most out of what your, your bank, get the most on your money. Sometimes a local bank will actually help you out, like a credit union might be more willing, a, a local community bank might be more willing. And just remember, you're dealing with your local bank online. Why not go online and get a much better interest rate through all these different options? I wouldn't put it past my grandma right now. She's gotten pretty tech savvy over the last like 10 years. She's got an iPad now. She knows what apps yeah. are. She downloads them. She, I don't know about banking, but she was just having a hoot about her new grocery app that she has. Oh yeah. And she can go and clip coupons and build a card and everything all through her app. And I was like, you go grandma. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great stuff. She probably is banking online with her local bank. So she might as well do the same exact thing, but get way better interest. <laughs> no doubt. Hi there, podcast listeners. This is Kyle with the Struggles Real Team. You know, the better looking of the Peters boys. One big, big favor to ask. Please take a moment and give us a five-star review. Justin is an incredible host and he's bringing so much value to the self-development space. We want to help young professionals figure out this whole adulting thing. And by leaving us a rating, you can help us do it. Thank you. You're the reason that we continue to do what we do. Now, back to the show. So let's shift focus. And I want to talk about social security, another really fun topic, you know, and that's a little bit of hyperbole. But honestly, I had a blast learning about social security from you. I did not know all the different nuance of social security, mostly because I thought it wasn't going to be around whenever I turned 63 or however, you know, whatever the age would be at that point in time for me to go and access social security and get some money from social security. I thought, honestly, just funding my grandma's lifestyle right now that thing's got to belly up eventually. I'm not going to bank on the fact that that's got to be here for me whenever I need it. But you might challenge me on that opinion. So let me ask you, why do you think Social Security has got to be around at my age? A lot of people hear that Social Security is going bankrupt and they think bankrupt means zero. That's not the case with Social Security. If you took the time to log in and looked at uh, your Social Security statement, you probably have a Social Security statement. Uh, yeah. Just about everyone's got a Social Security statement hey, you put a dollar into the system, you can go get your social security statement. It's going to tell you that in the year 2034, the social security system will not have enough money to keep up with its promises. It will only have enough money to pay 75% of its promises. 75% is way better than zero. And so I would not think that social security is going away. It's bankrupt down to zero. I would think social security has got to make some changes. And the easiest way to plan for that is what they put right on there. Instead of planning on 100% of the promises that they're making to you, right? If your social security statement says you're going to get $2,000 of a promise, just count on 75% of that. That's probably just the easiest way to look at it is that let me just plan on it being 25% less, but don't plan on it being zero. And I'm thinking when you're 20 or 30 or whether social security is there or not, probably is not going to affect you you should just save as much money as you can right now anyways. I'm thinking more of like the people that are 45, 50, 55. 
where they're making life decisions on something that they think is not going to exist at all and they are wrong because they're within like 10, 15, 20 years of their ability to actually get something from Social Security. When you're 20, when you're 30, just go out and save. If you think Social Security is not going to be there, that's fine. If that's what it takes to get you to save more, that's fine. But I'll tell you that the promise right now and the math right now says there will only be enough money for 75% of that promise to show up to you. If you are putting into your plans that there is zero Social Security, try putting in 75% of your promise because that's what the math is. That's the reality. Yeah, that gives me a lot more reassurance that that might be a fallback. But like you mentioned too, not necessarily banking on it. And it gives me a little bit more incentive and enthusiasm to continue to support my future self by maxing out my Roth IRA and investing through my 401k and putting some money into the taxable brokerage account, all of those things. But if it pops up and it's there, sweet, that's awesome. I actually found it really fascinating how social security is actually calculated. And shame on me, especially being someone that's really into personal finance and all the nitty gritty details. I honestly thought everybody got the same amount of social security. I thought it was just like you hit the age and then you started getting checks from the government and you were an American. Sweet, you get this amount at this age. But that's not necessarily true. How is your payout for social security actually calculated? Assuming that everything is staying the way it is. Yeah, we'll talk about that for just a second. But I think one thing too, a a danger, I, I just said, go ahead, ignore that social security exists when you're 20 and 30 a danger as you get closer is that you still ignore it. And (laughs) you just think, oh, it's just whatever, whatever happens. Well, social security for a couple can turn into a million dollar situation. And the way you fill out a form and when you fill out a form can drastically affect whether you get the full amount of that million bucks or more or less. And so just imagine any financial decision you have, when you fill out a form, how you fill out that form, can give you maybe a hundred grand or take away a hundred grand from you. Cause that's what the studies show is that when there's a optimal way, like here's the best way for one person to file, they oftentimes don't do that best way, whatever it is. And the average miss is like a hundred grand. And so as you get towards social security age, please study up on it. Please learn a bit about it and know that you have more control over the system. Like you have the ability to decide when you file. And that right there will swing your amount from Social Security up or down way more than this 25% potential drop. So definitely study it and learn it and take control of what you can control, which is when you can file and go out and be the one that gets that full amount that you can really get. Don't be the one that just kind of looks at it like a throwaway because you're kind of throwing away a hundred grand by the time you yeah. get to that, that point. Yeah, you, you put a lot of good triggers in for me. And like I said, this was the fun stuff that I like to learn about. It might not be important for the 20 or 30 something now. And we can have Jeremy back on in 30 years from now, Perfect. whenever we're all approaching that age and we can talk through the specifics. But if you have a parent that is nearing retirement and is thinking about some of these decisions around social security, you should honestly just send them retirement-revealed.com. Make sure that they go out and listen to all, all of the, the episodes about Social Security from you because you are right. A small click and you only get one chance. You only get one chance to do it too. Could be a major change from what's going on. I was boring my girlfriend, Gabby, last night, pillow talk. Probably not something you should be talking about at 10 o'clock right. at night. But I was just hyped about my conversation with you today. And I was talking through some of these things, especially if you are a couple married and there might be drastic differences with income as well. There could be a lot of strategy around when one person should claim Social Security and when the other person shouldn't. Just 
for the fact that one person might pass away eventually and yeah. there is some nuance there. So once again, lots of good stuff out on your podcast. I had a blast. Like I said, I don't know if it's that relevant for the 2030 somethings. So we'll get back into social security. I know I asked you, how is it calculated? Because once again, I'm like, I thought it was just a flat rate for everybody. Yeah, and how it's calculated is it's your earnings today will affect your social security in the future. And it's your top 35 years of earnings. It's like working is actually a helpful thing for social security. Earnings a helpful thing for social security. And they actually take today's earnings and they, they inflate it up with inflation or they take 10 years ago's earnings and they inflate it up with inflation. So you might look and say, oh my goodness, I made half as much 10 years ago. Is that even relevant? Does that even help me out at all? It might actually be a better deal from 10 years ago than today. They'll kind of equalize it all out. You don't have to worry about that part of it. But the whole point of the top 35 years is especially important for people that end up taking off of work for some reason. You might save up good money, take off of work for a, a couple of years because you want to travel the world. You might have kids and one of you in the couple takes off of work to help out with the kids. Mm -hmm. like, there might be gaps in your working history and they're taking the top 35 years. And if some of those years are zero, it's showing up as an average of zero. So I'm just thinking of my wife right now. She'll probably end up with like 20 or 25 years worth of working because she took off some time to help raise our kids, right? So if she has 20 or 25 years worth of working, she's gonna have 10 or 15 years worth of zero. So she might be thinking, when do I retire? Do I work this extra year or not? Well, if she's got 20 years of working, one more year makes it 21. That's five percentage more, right? That's basically 5% more for her social security for the rest of her life because she chose to take that extra year of working. So when you're getting down the line and you're saying, do I keep working or not working? Look up how many years of zeros and how many years of working do you have in your formula? And you might have somebody that started at the age of 16, 50 years later, they worked every year of their life. That extra year working might not actually affect their social security benefit. But a lot of other people, that extra year working might affect it. And you should know these things before you go click a button and fill it out. You should know how does my decision of working or not working affect things or not. Another part of how it's calculated is it's kind of like this progressive tax system. The more money you make, the more taxes you pay percentage-wise. It's kind of the opposite in a good way. The beginning parts of your earning in the year, you get a whole lot of that money back, like 90% of it. And then you kind of get to the middle and they're going to give back, kind of credit you back 32% of what you earned. And then you get to a level, it's around like 80,000 or so a year, where everything above that, you only get 15% back. And then you get to a level around like 150, 160,000 ish. It changes every year, where you get nothing back from Social Security. Why these are important is just to know one thing is that Social Security is designed to help the people that need the most help financially. And this system, actually does a fairly decent job of that. If you make 12 grand a year and you work for 35 years making 12 grand a year, you're going to get 90% of that back in your promise from Social Security. You make 200,000 a year, you make $2 million a year, all that extra money, you get none of that back. So that's kind of a helpful progressive thing in the, the system. You might like that or not like that, but that's the way it is. Also too, if you're somebody that's making that 200,000 a year, 500,000 a year, like really big bucks, all that extra that you're earning, the government's not giving you any of that back in Social Security. So you are more responsible for your own earnings on that. So make sure if you are having a higher earning career, you got to save even more percentage-wise 
to make up for it than somebody that's earning an average level in their career. So you just have more responsibility. Don't take all that extra money and go have a lot of extra fun. Have some extra fun, but (laughs) you earn a lot of money. You are more responsible for yourself in your retirement. So you got to save more percentage wise. Mm. So fascinating. And at a certain level too, income wise, you're not paying into social security, correct? Well, that's it. So I guess the, the positive is, is you're not paying into social security once you reach that level, but you're also not getting a dime of that back after you reach that level. Which seems kind of fair, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So it's not the perfect system. It might be a little bit of a broken system. Honestly, I'm really curious in your opinion, what would be some things if you had a magic wand, you were in charge of social security, you were director of social security and you were making all of these decisions, what would be one or two things that you would change about the current system so that it continues to be fruitful for everybody moving forward? Yeah, the problem with Social Security is that there is not enough money and there's too much benefits. So you you just have to address both those things. You just said right there that there's a certain level where you stop getting taxed on your Social Security. That's kind of the easiest quick fix, the Social Security. Don't stop taxing people for Social Security at a certain income level. Like keep that same percentage growing on there. That's just the easiest fix. Another part of Social Security is their benefits are basically promised to you at a certain age. Back when they started this 90 years ago, that age of 65, people are living like 8, 10, 12 years longer on average than they were 90 years ago. And they only bumped it up by two years, at least bumping it maybe to 70 as the promised date instead of right now being 67 as the promised date. You put those two together, that'll probably fix the long-term math. There's a whole lot of other things that go on with Social Security. I had Dr. Larry Kotlikoff, who's a very interesting, yeah. interesting, so, so smart, especially with Social Security on there. He talks about how the system is basically sexist, where, well, it's the females that have kids. It's usually the females that take the time off from work. And when you have this system that's benefiting the people who are, have the access to more working time, they get a higher benefit amount. And so oftentimes, the way that the rules are set up can be harmful to women. And so there's kind of on the margins there, there's some different tweaks you can make to hopefully make things better. And then also too, just we'll talk a little bit politically, but just look demographically. I'm a retirement planner. I look a lot at people's longevity and just historically, demographically in America, if you are white and higher income, you have a higher longevity than if you're not either of those two things. And social security pays you more if you have a higher longevity. You never claim your social security, nobody else is getting it. And so there's kind of like a generational wealth. There's a a racial wealth component that I feel that could be fixed in there. But the summary of it all is there's not enough money. There's too much benefits. Something's got to change. And there's a lot there. It's kind of an easy fix. More taxes, less benefits, boom, you're done. No one wants to do either one of those, right? Yeah, not at all. But also the system does a lot of great as well. Oh my goodness, yeah. This kind of forced retirement plan of what it is, or at least this backstop, especially for elderly widows, people that get sick, all of the above. And, and it's nice that that is there and that it's not all in our hands to make sure that we have enough money come retirement. So I would love to see it stick around for a while. I think it does a lot of great. And I'm with you. I think there needs to be some changes. And honestly, the two obvious ones is we need to put more money into it and we need to stop taking so much money out of it. Therefore, what do you want to change about those two things? <laughs> right. Yep. You probably got to do both of them. Yeah, I think you do. I'll say real quick that the official name is Old Age Survivor and Disability Insurance. Think of it like that. Like it's designed to help out when you are older, 
when you're a surviving spouse, when you're disabled, and it's insurance. It is not a retirement plan. It is a, a backstop. Any decision you make and any way that the system is changed, your decisions ought to be around, okay, what do we do to protect people in case those things happen? So Jeremy, it came up a few times. You're a financial advisor. I know that's, that's how you, you stated online, but I guess, are you financial planner? What do you prefer to go by? Yeah, so I prefer retirement planner because I help people plan out their retirement. I told my social engine optimization, my website marketing guy, I said, I'm a financial planner. That's what I do. I'm, I'm way better than those financial advisors. He said, it's great, but nobody searches for financial planner online. <laughs> it's like five to one people search for financial advisor. So that's a marketing thing I learned is that you've got to call yourself what people call you. Apparently financial advisor is what people are looking for online and hopefully they find <laughs> us out. We mentioned a few different times, so let's repeat it again. You got an awesome podcast out there. I think it's very interesting, even for the 20 and 30-somethings, just to, to dive a little bit deeper that are curious about retirement and a lot of other personal finance topics that are out there. So can you tell us a little bit about your podcast and where people can find it? Yeah, so our podcast is Retirement Revealed. We've got over 100 episodes, been doing it for three years now. We come out every week with a new episode. And you can search for us, Retirement Revealed. Go to retirement-revealed.com. We're talking all things retirement which might just give you a preview of what life looks like down the road, might just give you, oh my goodness, this is a lot easier to share this podcast with my parents compared to telling them what they're doing wrong about whatever it is. And just because it's focused on people that are basically 55 to 65, doesn't mean there's things you can't get out of it. Right now, universally, everyone can get more interest and everyone should be getting more interest. And that's what we've been talking a lot, a lot about lately. Can you cover some other topics in, in there that piqued my interest? Great yep. one around auto insurance and then coming out of college debt-free too, which seemed totally off your content calendar, but I really enjoyed it from the younger listener standpoint. So there's some good stuff out there. Highly encourage people to go check out the podcast. It's on my routine list. So I'll, I'll be tuning in and listening. But final question for you, Jeremy, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Yeah, so I thought about this for a little bit and I realized that the answer is it's something called motivational interviewing. Thank you for covering this. This was on my additional threads that I really wanted to ask you about, but I just couldn't squeeze it in here. Yeah, so let's here do you go. It. Yeah, so, so motivational interview. Let me tell you how I got into this. One piece is that my wife is a elementary school counselor. And so thankfully through that, I'm more in tune to, I guess, the emotional quotient than your average financial advisor. One piece that really got me going on this is that I'll go to a lot of conferences and half the advice is, hey, if you want to succeed in life, if you want to do well, work with your clients, the key is to ask good questions. And yet nobody ever said, here's how you ask good questions. And so I looked into it. I thankfully came across a few articles and realized there is a practice, a way to have a guided discussion with people about making changes. And so motivational interviewing came out of the system of like 40, 50 years ago where you might have been forced to go to an alcohol and drug counselor because you had an alcohol or drug problem. And back in the day, the thought was, let me tell you how wrong you are and how you need to change. And that obviously never worked. And so people were trying to figure out how do we, how do we have a discussion with someone who clearly has a strong connection? Like you, you've got biochemical reasons why you're not changing. How do we work with them on that? Yes, it came out of a kind of a therapeutic standpoint, but just the whole idea of here's how you have a guided discussion with people around change, that helped me out. Just knowing, instead of saying, you should ask good questions, it's here's how you have a conversation with people. And it's just amazing that. So check it out, motivational interviewing. It's just a way to go deeper than how is your day, right? 
and you might be in a client consulting situation, you might be talking with your, your girlfriend, right? And you're just saying, hey, should we do this or that? Or somebody, your friend comes up to you and says, I've got this situation. And instead of only listening to them or only telling them what they should do, it's a way to have a, a discussion and help them to come up to a conclusion on their own. Motivational interviewing, it's got to be interactive because having that practice time is so helpful. Like you've got to ingrain it into yourself. And what's interesting too, what got me with the motivational interviewing is these conferences say, you got to ask good questions. And motivational interviewing will tell you that if you ask a bunch of questions, people are going to feel defensive. And so a lot of times, here, I'll just give you the, the, the summary. When you're talking to people, I think this would be a good thing of any conversation. Ask open-ended questions, give affirmations, give reflections, and give summaries. And so somebody might come to you with a, with a problem. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, that's horrible. You might say, you put a lot of thought into this. That's an affirmation. Yeah, because it's important. You know, this, this is very important to you. That's a non-question that's both affirming the person and kind of giving them an ability to reflect on themselves and, and kind of keep the conversation going. So motivational interviewing, I love it. And it's a great life skill. It's a great business skill. It's a great relationship skill. It's helpful for the world. I'd sign up for the class right away. It definitely Perfect. piqued my interest. It was the very last thing I crossed off my list for, for threads that I wanted to talk to you about. I was so sad to let it go. Being a podcaster, of course, this is bread and butter, something that I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into. Like I said, yesterday when I was making my final list, it was the very last one I crossed off. I was like, ah, bummer. And I wanted to ask you about it, but I'm so glad you brought it up. Jeremy Kyle, retirement planner. Check him out. He's also a podcast host, Retirement Revealed that you can find it at retirement-revealed.com. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a blast. Thanks for tuning into the episode. Here's what you can expect next on The Struggle is Real. Maybe instead of needing to commute to the gym and spend two hours there, instead, you can consider a 15-minute walk, a workout. And you might push back and be like, ah, oh, that's not a workout. That's not what I want to accomplish with this goal. What I want to tell you is that whenever you set a new goal and begin working towards it, the single most important thing is showing up. Don't judge yourself for the output, but instead work towards building a habit. Because once you have built a habit, you can now increase the intensity. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.